it's really a uh, blessing to be with you guys again um, in a different building from last time. So this place is great. Um, uh, this morning, we're going to think about keeping a missional mindset. How do we keep a missional mindset? How do we keep a, a passion for evangelism when often it feels like hard work, right? Uh, let me tell you a story about a friend of mine, John. He uh, it was an atheist, and we've known each other a long time. And for a long time, we had conversation after conversation, and it would face with kind of rejection and, and just not, not any interest. But as our friendship grew, sometimes we'd have deeper conversations when life was tough for him. And I remember one particular occasion. Uh, we went out for a meal. This was a regular thing. We would go for a curry at one curry house always in Birmingham. Birmingham was famous for curry houses. Um, and we'd go to this, this curry house in a place called Selyoke, and we'd sit... Uh, you guys from Selyoke, are you? There we go. You know, probably know the curry house. Um, but we'd sit uh, and we'd have this, have this curry, have a bit of chat, and then he just suddenly opened up. He, he looked depressed and he, and he just said, Phil, I'm struggling. He says, I go to work every day and my job's fine. Nothing wrong with it. And the pay is good. But I just think, what's the point? I earn this money and I go the next day and earn more money. And sometimes I spend the money and we do nice things. And I just think, what's the point? What's the purpose? What am I here for? And I'd been reading Ecclesiastes just in the weeks before. This is what God does sometimes, isn't it? And I said to him, John, it's funny. I, I know this book of the Bible that talks about how everything under the sun is meaningless without God. And he says, no, no, let me stop you there for I know you have purpose. I know your life has meaning because you have God. And I said to him, well, John, I was thinking, this is the moment. John, you can have that too. You just need to trust in God. And he said to me, yes, but I am master of my fate and captain of my soul. And that was the end of the conversation. I was gutted. All this conversation, all this opportunity, and still, just in the end, he's not interested. And every conversation since, there's just an apathy towards it all. I wonder if you've ever had that sort of conversation, that feeling. Maybe you've had a conversation where you, you think you've presented the perfect gospel and then nothing's happened. Or maybe you've faced rejection. Let me tell you about another friend, Mike. He, uh, we got on fine. It seemed, you know, we, we were good friends. And then one year, I decided to invite him to a Christmas event at church. And you would think I'd punched him in the face the way he responded. He just got angry very quickly. He said, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And then he made the next few months quite difficult for me in terms of whenever we were out together with a group of lads, he would make comments to make it clear that he didn't want me there. Now, that might seem quite trivial. Like, when we think about what happens in Acts, when we think about what happens in other parts of the world, what we face is minimal, isn't it? But it is discouraging. The discouragement is real. And here is the danger, I think, for us. We just give up. We just feel discouraged. We lose our confidence or we start to presume people don't want to know. I love the book of Acts because we're tempted sometimes to think of Acts and we think of some of the stories like Peter preaching and 3,000 being saved. And it's wonderful, isn't it? And we celebrate. But then when sometimes we, we forget and we think that's the normal. And when, so when we have those sort of conversations I describe, we kind of go, oh, what am I doing wrong? But actually, Acts is full of stories of apostles and people going out and sharing the gospel and then being rejected. 
like this one. You guys have read ahead of this already. Dave told me this morning. But here is Peter and... This is the Peter that in chapter 2 preaches the gospel and 3,000 are saved. So you think, right, this guy's got something. But he goes out in chapter 4 and he preaches the gospel. And, you know, look at the communication. When he says things like this, you think it's bound to work, isn't it? Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You think it's going to happen again. And then you read verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished. And you think, it's going to happen. Verse 14. But since they, could not see, since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Verse 15. So they, they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin then confer together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must, more, we must warn them to speak no longer uh, to anyone in the name. Peter preaches the message, but this time, rejection. Shut him up, they say. What's gone wrong? I think this passage is reassuringly real for us. How do we avoid discouragements? How do we avoid giving up? How do we keep a missional mindset? How do we continue committed, boldly proclaiming Christ? Well, I'm convinced in the passage we've just had read that what we see is that mission starts in here, amongst you. What happens out there is empowered by everything in here. I've got three P's this morning, and the first is partnership. You see, Peter and John, they go back to the people, don't they? Back to the church. And actually, I don't know if you noticed, but in the New Testament, the pattern is partnership. Jesus sends out his disciples in twos, then they come back. The apostles go out, often in more than just one, sometimes one, but often there's more. There's at least scribes as well. Then they come back. They report, they go out, they come back, they go out, they come back. Mission is part of corporate church life. There's a sending out, a coming back, a prayer, an empowering, and a going out again. See, what do Peter and John do first? They don't go and sulk. They don't even go and pray first. They go back to the people and report. See, even the apostles in their unique role, didn't see evangelism as an individual thing. See, our problem, as I think in our individual culture, we often think of evangelism and the Christian life is kind of something we just do on our own with a bit of support. Our problem is I think we see evangelism and the Christian life a bit like cricket. I'm going to ask Dave to come and help me at this point. I don't always use props, but I thought it was helpful this morning. I'm sorry if you're not a sports fan, but this will make sense. Dave, come up. I'm going to give you this. Now, you're an Englishman, so you love cricket, right? Yes, you love cricket, yes. You don't, love that, you don't like cricket, you love it. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you are the famous Ben Stokes. That's a cricketer. Now, in cricket, I'm not going to try and explain cricket, but cricket, basically, you go out and you try and score points by hitting a ball with a bat. So Dave is out in the crease, and it's a famous match. It's a very famous match against Australia. That's England's rivals. And England are way behind, but Dave, sorry, Ben, has had a great day. 
he has scored 100 runs. Now celebrate your 100 runs. No, you're supposed to lift your bats. Lift your bat, right. He's, he's celebrating. Now, the reason I want to do this is because where is the team? Where's the rest of the team? Anyone know cricket? Where are the rest of his teammates? They're where you are. They're sitting on the sidelines. See, cricket is a, a team sport, but really it's about individual performances. And the only interaction really is an occasional celebration with Dave that he's scored some runs. But if I'm a batsman sitting in the stands, I'm really thinking, I wish I'd done that. Or, can I go out and do that next? And sometimes I think, in the way we do evangelism, we're a bit like cricketers. We're on the same team, we celebrate the victories, but the rest of the time we're kind of on our own, doing our own thing. Dave, you can sit down a second. I'm going to make you get back up in a second. It's no wonder, is it then, that we can be discouraged? It's no wonder that we can, uh, can kind of just feel powerless. It's no wonder we can lose perspective. There's a sense in these verses, all, and all the way through Acts, that they are in it together. They are in it together. It's not just on the same side, but they're in, intimately involved. They're invested in one another. So I want to say that the, the kind of evangelism acts is more like rugby than cricket. Right, I'm going to need Dave. Marion, can I borrow you as well? Can I have one more person, actually? Can you come up as well? Is that right? Now, anyone who wants to tackle Dave, stand up. No, no, I'm not going to do that. Everyone will be up. No, right, so Dave, you, you need one of these. Oh. You're getting lessons in sports as well as a sermon here, right? You need that. So, I'm, so in a game of rugby... Dave's aim is to get to those doors, that's where the try line is, and to put the ball down, and that's called a try, the score, okay? Now, all of you guys are, let's say, the Welsh, you're an Englishman, you're the Welsh opposition, and Dave has to get there, but all of you want to kill him. Not actually, but basically. So, we're going to have this thing called a line-out, so Dave, I'm going to throw the ball in, you're going to catch it, you lift it up, you come down, and you're going to try and get to that line, where do you go? No, no, don't turn that way, that's dangerous. So you're going to come here and face this way, and you're going to come here and put your arm around Dave, and you're going to come here and also put your arm around Dave, that's it. And you're going to push him that way. Don't, actually, because he'll fall off the stage. I want to hold this image. This is funny, but this is a serious thing because, see, in the game of rugby, the only way Dave is getting to that line without being killed is if he has his teammates with him. They are going to push him, and they're going to go in the mud together and face the enemy together. That is, just hold there. I think this is a better picture of what the evangelism in Acts is like. They're in it together, completely committed. And the game of rugby, unless you are working as a team, unless you have a bond as a team, unless you understand each other and in the mud together, you won't win a game. No individual performance can win a game of rugby. You guys can sit down. There is, it's a silly analogy, but it's a serious point. That is what we see in Acts. They are in it together. They're facing persecution together. They're facing rejection together. Even as, Paul, as John and Peter go out, though the, the rest of the disciples are kind of in their homes, they are with them. What do you read in verse 32? 32? You guys have read this already. This is how the New Testament church operated. All the believers were one in heart and mind. One in heart and mind. That is how Christian life worked, and that is how mission worked. You see, no one claimed that any of the possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. 
That's how they did mission too. And that is what we see in our passage. Do you see what happens? Peter and John, they come back. And what's the first thing that people do? Verse 24. They raise their voice in prayer. They raise their voice in prayer. They are invested in the mission of Peter and John. They have a shared heart, a shared concern for Peter and John for their mission. I wonder, are we invested in each other's lives in such a way that we have a shared heart and concern for each other's discipleship and mission? What would it look like if you had a shared heart for the lost in each other's lives? Does your mission look like a game of cricket or a game of rugby? Are you in the mud together? Partnership. But it's not just partnership with each other, is it, we see in this passage. The most important partnership is with God himself. You see how the believers, when they pray, they don't start with petition, and we'll come to that in a minute. But eventually, verse 29, they ask for two things. They ask God to enable, and they ask God to stretch out his hand. Effective evangelism is completely reliant on the power of the Holy Spirit. God, enable your servants to speak boldly and reach out your hands and do miracles. Rico Tice had this brilliant phrase about evangelism. He said, we preach Christ, God opens blind eyes. But I want to say Acts here adds a bit to that. It says, God enables us to preach Christ and God opens blind eyes. It's all his work. We are partnering with God in his purposes not in hours. When I came this morning, Dave was struggling with all the tech over there, and I've been in that place. I sympathize with you. I wonder if you ever had this happen. Uh, you guys who have done sound stuff, you walk into church, you set up all this gear here, all these cables, you switch the computer on, you switch the desk on, and then the person goes to play the guitar and there's no sound. And you spend 20 minutes rearranging cables and replugging things in and switching stuff on at the back and still no sound. And then you ask for help and someone comes and goes, yeah, that plug on the wall, that speaker plug, yeah, you've got to switch that on. It's all, it's all, uh, it's all impossible without the power. This is God's mission. It's his heart. It's him that provides the power and the miracles. It's him that does the work. That is what we read in verse 12, isn't it? There is no other name under heaven by which we're saved. We need to partner with him. And I say this because I know it's obvious, but I sometimes wonder if we have a tendency to go into fix-it mode, and we, we do brilliant courses like Christianity Explored and Alpha, and we do all these evangelism training courses that equip us to be better at sharing the gospel more clearly but we almost come to rely on them as if they're some kind of silver bullet. So when people don't turn up to Christianity Explored or when people aren't saved as a result of it, we go, oh, it didn't work. Or what is the purpose? They are just tools. The purpose is that God's purposes are fulfilled. It's God who does the work. He is working out his purpose in all things. Our partnership is with each other and with him. And what a privilege that we get to partner with the triune God as his children, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
But if we're going to do that, we need to keep a right perspective. That's my second P. I love the response of the believers in verse 24. They turn immediately to prayer, but they don't start with petition. They don't start asking for stuff straight away, do they? In fact, most of their prayer is taken up with just a recognition of who God is. What are they doing? They are reorientating their hearts to the truth about who God is. They start off by saying, sovereign Lord. That is a, a word for someone who's the ruler with unmatchable power. And then they say three things. You could have a sermon series just on these, but they say, verse 24, you made. Verse 25, you spoke. Verse 28, you decided. You made. They declare how it's God's who is Lord of creation. That's who they are serving. That's who they're worshipping. That's who they're praying to. They declare how he's Lord of revelation. He spoke through his servant David. And they quote Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm. It, it speaks about the nations raging and plotting and banding against the Lord's chosen one. And they know it's, it's pointing to Jesus. Verse 28, you decided. They declare how it was God who decided beforehand all that was going to happen to Jesus. He is in charge. See, I think sometimes we are perplexed, maybe a bit baffled by the idea of God being sovereign and us having responsibility and and people get kind of caught up on it, don't they? But I think we should find that massively reassuring that God is sovereign. Is it massively reassuring that nothing can surprise him? Is it massively reassuring that when we face rejection, God isn't going, oh, I didn't expect that to happen. Nothing can thwart his purposes. And so what are the believers doing? They They are encouraging Peter and John by remembering that the ultimate example of that, that God decided beforehand that Herod and Pilate would meet with the Gentiles. God decided beforehand that the Jews would conspire against him. God decided beforehand that the nations would rage. God decided beforehand that they would shout, crucify him. God decided beforehand that they would mock him and beat him and scorn him. God decided beforehand that those nails would be driven through his hands that he would die on that cross. None of it surprised him. None of it undermined his purposes. No, he was working out his purposes for the salvation of the world, and that was proved in the resurrection. Nothing can thwart God's purposes. So why do the believers pray this at this point? Why are they declaring these truths Well, I think because Peter and John, having come back from being rejected, would have needed reassurance. How are they going to be empowered to go out again? Because they need to remember who God is. His purpose isn't all. They need their hearts reorientating. I don't know if you've ever gone up or for a long walk, maybe up a mountain. Well, if you ever get lost, there are some things you need. I'm not a a, a map reader particularly, but I know that you need a map and a compass. A map so that you can look for distinctive features in the, in the land, boundaries, landmarks, and then a compass so that you know which way you're facing, so that you can reorientate yourself, ground yourself in the right place, and find your way again. Well, I think that's what this prayer does for the believers. As they pray and declare to God, about God, they worship God, they also reorientate in their own hearts 
to the truth about who he is and encouraging Peter and John. As they pray, they remember that as they go out on the road marked with suffering, as they go out and face rejection and potentially death, which one day they will, they can't fail. Because whatever the outcome is, as they proclaim Christ, they can trust God to work out his purposes, no matter how people respond. Look at what happens as a result of the prayer in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. There is something unique about what the Spirit does. We can't always expect him to shake the building. I mean, you won't be worried about your walls if he does. But great, if that's what he wants to do. But there is something that God does, isn't he? He promises to send his Spirit. As believers, we are those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes he empowers us specifically for specific purposes. Here, as the believers pray, as they declare who God is... As they remind Peter and John, what happens? Peter and John are emboldened by the Spirit, but it's through the truth of God's Word. It's as their perspective is reframed again around God's glory and God's power and God's purposes. And that keeps them going and keeps them from discouragement. But it also reminds them of their role just jump ahead. Are you in chapter 5 yet? Oh, you're way ahead. So you'll, you'll all know verse 41 of chapter 5. Let me read it. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Isn't it amazing that the apostles face rejection, but rather than be discouraged, they rejoice. Why? Because they are counted worthy of partaking with Christ in his suffering. They are joyful about partnering with Jesus. They know their purpose. The Catechism says, the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now don't mishear me, this doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned for the lost. But it means that we are concerned and not despairing. It means we, we mourn, but don't give up. Because we share Jesus' heart, but we trust his will and power. And we know that our greatest desire is the Messiah, even more than seeing people saved. Our joy is to be in the mud with Jesus on his mission. So that as we hold out the gospel, as we herald the king, no matter how people respond, we know he will work out his purposes. That is our joy. Is our joy being in the mud with Jesus? Is our greatest joy found in fellowship with each other and with him? This morning. Partnership, perspective. What does that look like? My third piece is prayer. Is it striking that the, the primary thing the believers do here is pray? 
They don't kind of say they're there, Peter and John. They don't say, kind of come and lick your wounds. They pray. But they more, it's not just a kind of token prayer. They, they are ministering to each other in prayer. See, what does prayer do? It exposes our hearts. And it also, it also uh, directs our hearts. As we pray, we, we pour out our inner feelings to God. But then we listen with humility for him to speak. How many times in the New Testament are we urged to pray? <laughs> pray without ceasing. Pray with continually. Pray with thanksgiving, bringing our requests to God. Prayer is full of declaring who God is and depending on him. Maybe we're urged to pray, some, pray so much in the New Testament because we're not very good at it, perhaps. I don't know. See, what is the gel that holds this, this partnership together? It's prayer. It's together coming before the Father, the Son, and the Spirits in dependence and in worship. This is more than just a mission prayer night once a year. This is an intimate and constant and heartfelt and united. It's powerful because we are entering the throne room together and sitting at the king's feet. Let me ask you, are you invested in praying continually for one another? See, to pray for someone, you need to invest in them. You need to listen to them. You need to care about them. You need to feel what they're feeling. To pray for someone, you need to care about them. And to pray to someone, you need to trust them. That's God. See, prayer for Peter and John here is incredibly personal. It's an incredibly pastoral prayer. I know it seems full of theology, but actually what are the believers doing? They are, they are meeting Peter and John at what they need. They've just faced rejection. They need reassurance. Well, what better way to reassure them than tell them who God is and remind them of his power and pray for the Spirit's equipping and the Spirit's work. See, as they depend on God together, they are invested in each other. Verse 29, they pray for God's heart, his consideration of what they're facing. They pray for faithfulness, for boldness, not comfort. Is that interesting? Verse 30, they pray for mercy, for God to do signs amongst those who are rejecting them. Are you a church that is committed to praying for each other? Be invested in each other, on mission together, as a team in the mud together, in partnership with the Lord Jesus Trusting in his powers and his purpose. I wonder what that will look like for you in the coming weeks and months. Let me pray.